Now we have in chapter 38, King Hezekiah's sickness and his prayer and his healing. Now, it's very interesting how this chapter opens. It says, in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. Not in that day. We've seen in that day is a technical expression that looks down. Beginning with the great tribulation period, going through the millennial kingdom. But now it's in those days. What days? Those days that Isaiah's writing about, when Hezekiah was sick unto death. And I think that it was at the same time that Sennacherib had come down against him. He was having trouble outside the wall with the Assyrian, and inside he's having trouble with a boil that was just about to kill him. There are those that believe it was cancer or leprosy or something like that. Apparently it was a terminal disease that he had, and apparently his time had come. And so I read verse 1. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Now, the sentence of death is given to Hezekiah by Isaiah the prophet. And the sentence of death, of course, I think today rests upon each one of us, although we do not know the day nor the hour. But we know this, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then after death the judgment. Now, this is a divine date, and I'm sure that if each one of you listening in today knew the exact time, why, it would change your way of living. Your lifestyle would be changed. I had a letter several years ago from a young minister, and the doctor told him he had cancer and that it was terminal. And he sent out a letter to his friends, and he included me in it. He said in that letter, among other things, one thing I've discovered in the last few days. When a Christian is suddenly confronted with a sentence of death, He surely begins to give a proper evaluation of material things. My fishing gear and books and orchard are not nearly so valuable as they were a week ago. That's the end of the quote. I conducted the funeral of that fine young preacher. May I say that after that, I had the experience of having cancer and having My family doctor at that time told me that he frankly thought I only had three more months to live. Well, God had other plans for which I'm indeed grateful. I thank him and praise him every opportunity I get, and this is one of them. But I know what it is in that brief moment to face up to it. And it is amazing. I can bear witness to the accuracy of this man's statement was amazing to me how certain things became very unimportant. Certain things, my home was one thing. I'll be honest with you, I thought I wouldn't be living in it but just a few more weeks, and therefore it was very unimportant. And where you're going becomes very important, by the way. 
Now, what did this man Hezekiah do? And I'd like to pinpoint this in the life of Hezekiah because it's also quite revealing to know that. We are told that it was in those days. Well, let's identify the exact time that he had this boil and a death sentence was delivered to him. Well, it was during the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians. He had trouble on the outside, trouble on the inside. Now, somebody says, how do you know that? Well, Hezekiah reigned 29 years, and he reigned 15 years after this event, we're told. Now, his sickness was in the 14th year of his reign. Now, we're told back in Isaiah 36, 1, Now, it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against him. Well, that means the same year that Sennacherib, the Assyrian, came against him, he had this boil. And this man had real trouble, you see. Now, we're told here that this man goes to prayer. In verse 2, Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord. We've seen him in prayer before as he spread a letter before the Lord. Now, in verse 3, And he said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. This is a time when a man can weep, by the way. I wept. I'm sure this man whose letter I referred to wept. You're bound to it a time like that. And this man wept sore, and he prayed to God, and on the basis of his life, And in that day, under the Old Testament rule, which was the Mosaic Law, this man had a good reputation before God. We're told in 2 Kings 18.5 concerning Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. So this man stands out as an outstanding man. He's not boasting when he made that claim. Now, God heard his prayer. Verse 4, Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I'll add unto thy days fifteen years. Now, God did hear and answer his prayer. And he did it for the sake of David, we're told here, for the sake of David thy father. Well, that's not the basis today God hears and answers our prayer. The Lord Jesus put it like this in John 16:23 and 24. And in that day, and that's this day, ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he'll give it you. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, and your joy may be full. Now, we can go to God in the name of Christ today, to our Heavenly Father, with our prayer. And if it's his will, if it pleases the Lord Jesus, if it's in his name, and my friend, a prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus is not necessarily just adding a tag on the end of your prayer in Jesus' name. And however 
I believe that. I think it should be there. I don't like the prayers I'm hearing today by good men who just break off. In fact, they just say amen. Somebody said the other day they couldn't get their hands folded and eyes closed when I start praying on the program. Well, when I hear these men pray, I can't open them in time. They're already doing something else. I think a prayer should be made in Jesus' name. But when you pray it in Jesus' name, it means thy will be done. It means that it's to please him. Sometimes he'll heal you. Sometimes he won't. He's the one. And therefore, this man here came on a little different basis. Now, God said to him something else that we can understand when we know the time. Verse 6, And I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I'll defend this city. Now, God ties in his deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrian with Hezekiah's deliverance from death. In other words, his answer to one request will encourage the believer's heart that he'll answer the other requests. And that is wonderful. I'll be honest with you, I've been greatly strengthened in my own faith since God heard and answered your prayer, many of you out there that prayed for us. Now, God gave him a sign in that day. He'd bring the shadow of the degrees back on the sundial. The word here that's translated sundial can mean steps. And it's so translated by Dr. Jennings, he says, Behold, I'll cause the shadow of the steps to return, which has gone down in the steps of Ahaz with the sun. Backward ten steps, and the sun returned ten steps by the steps which it had gone down. I can't go into detail, but apparently the sundial in that day was a great big thing, not just a small one on top of a little pillar. They have one out at Dodge City, Kansas, there at the railroad station. On one side, it's a big one, and the sun does shine on it. And I think the sundial of Ahaz was a big one made in the form of steps, because that's the way they did it in that day. Apparently, it went up to the point, and as the sun came up, it would come up one side of the steps, go down the other side of the steps. Apparently, they made it like that, and that was the way they could tell time. Now, this was 45 minutes. God would back it up. Now, when did God ever back up time before? Well, that was in the days of Joshua, and there are those that have found out that there was 45 minutes lacking on that day. So, God just evened it off here, and at the same time gave this man a sign. Now, this was something that this man did. He wrote a psalm at that time. Many believe that he composed Psalm 116. And here you have a period of praise. And evidently this here, and I'm not reading it today, was set to music. The question now sometimes arises, was Hezekiah right in asking God to extend his life? And he says here in verse 20, the Lord was ready to save me, therefore we'll sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Now, actually, we're told in Second Chronicles 32.25 that at this time there was a great welling up of praise in his heart to God, and he had this song sung. 
But apparently, after this, why, he became rather proud and arrogant. And we're told in Second Chronicles 32.25, which, by the way, gives you God's viewpoint, it says, "...but Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem." Now, here is an evidence of the fact that maybe he should not have asked for an extension. It led to pride in this man's life. And he was raised up, you see. Well, it ought to humble you. When I went to the Lord on this matter, I remembered this story. And I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, if you let me live, I'll promise to do your will. And I'll keep just getting out your word. I won't retire in the sense of stop giving out the word. And very frankly... That's the reason I overextended myself in conferences and everything. I wasn't going to let the Lord down. And then I think he's made it pretty clear to me. Don't kill yourself now after I've extended your life by overdoing it. And so I'm trying to be reasonable today. At least I think I am. Wife's not quite sure I'm being reasonable yet. But the interesting thing is here, there is a grave danger of you getting away from God after a wonderful experience like this. Some people say, well, it ought to draw you closer. No, there's a danger of you withdrawing from the Lord. Hezekiah did. Was he right in asking God to extend his life? Should he not have died when the time came? And then we have another reason for it. Manasseh, his son, was 12 years old when he began to reign. And his life was extended 15 years. So Manasseh was born after this sickness. Now, what about Manasseh? Well, Manasseh just happens to be the worst king that either kingdom ever had. I consider Manasseh worse than Ahab and Jezebel put together. And I think it's during his reign that the Shekinah glory departed. Because if it didn't depart during his reign, I can't think of any reason it would depart afterward. He is one that is very much like Antichrist, the man of sin that's yet to come. Now, he was the son of Hezekiah born after this. And then, in this next chapter, we'll see another reason, and that is this man Hezekiah, after he was raised up, played the fool. And we'll see that in just a moment. Now, did God do this miraculously by just saying hocus-pocus and have Isaiah, you know, pray over him, and then old Hezekiah fell backwards, or that he put his hand on him pretty hard? No, he didn't do that. Notice what Isaiah said to do, verse 21. For Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster upon the boil. He shall recover. In other words, there are two things that James said. James says, Call the elders to come and anoint him with oil. And that anointing there is not religious, not ceremonial. That is oil for healing. By the way, that's medicinal. And then it says, pray for him. So that what God said through Isaiah and what he said through James is the same. He says, the thing that you do when you get sick is pray and call for the doctor. That's the thing you're to do. Be sensible. Now, chapter 39. We have here then that Hezekiah plays the fool, and that's the way I've labeled this. And there's a tremendous thing that takes place here, the transfer of power from Assyria and out of Babylon. We'll see that. Verse 1, 
At that time, Merodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he'd heard that he'd been sick and was recovered. And this is very interesting here. Merodach actually means the rebel, and Baladan means not the Lord. And his full name means, therefore, the rebel, not the Lord. And back of this king, of course, is Nimrod, the founder of Babylon, and Satan, who is the real rebel against God. He's the god of this world. And this man now comes with flattery. These ambassadors that were sent over, they brought a letter, and they flattered Hezekiah. They said, why, the king of Babylon's been concerned about you. And so he's sending over a gift or rejoice. And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment, all the house of his armor, all that was found in his treasures. Now, this man at this time, you see, had not lost very many of the riches that Solomon and David had gathered. And we're told in Second Chronicles 32, 27, 28, And Hezekiah had exceeding much riches and honor. He made himself treasures of silver and gold, for precious stone, spices, for shields, and for all manner of pleasant jewels, storehouses also for the increase of corn and wine and oil and stalls for all manner of beasts and coats for flocks. Now, what you have here is something quite interesting. This man, Hezekiah, now receives the embassage that's come from Babylon. They flatter him. King's glad you got well. Here's a gift for you, and here's a letter from him. Get well card. And instead of taking this letter and opening it before the Lord, like he did the one from Assyria, he put this aside, and he received these, and they flattered him. And so he thought, well, I'll just show them around. And he gave them the VP treatment, and he gave them the tour of the grounds of Jerusalem. And actually, Solomon had cornered the gold in the world in that day. He'd cornered the market, and quite a few other things. And it was there, stored away in Jerusalem. And this man, Hezekiah, foolishly showed it to this embassage. They made note of it, and they went back to Babylon. They said to the king, when you get strong enough, we know where you could get all the money, all the gold and the silver and the jewels you'll need to carry on war, stored away over there in Jerusalem. And he made a big mistake because Isaiah heard what was happening. And in verse 3, Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? From whence came they unto thee? Hezekiah said, They come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. He says, Isn't that wonderful? But that's not what this man Isaiah said. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that's in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. This man played the fool, you see. He should never have done this. And this man, Hezekiah, said, When will this take place? Isaiah said, It won't take place in your day. And then this man, Hezekiah, says a strange thing. 
He says, well, I'm glad it won't take place in my day. But what about his son and his grandson and his great-grandson? For it did take place in their day, by the way. This was literally fulfilled. Hezekiah, his life was extended 15 years. Was it good? No, it was not good. He played the fool. Three terrible things took place during those 15 years. Friends, we have now come to the last major division in the book of Isaiah. And if you have your Bible and will turn with us to the 40th chapter... And we begin now this last major section. And the contrast between the first and the last here, in the first 35 chapters, we had a revelation of the sovereign on the throne. Now we have a revelation of the Savior in the place of suffering. We saw the crown in chapter 6. And in this section... In chapter 53, we'll see the cross. The first section was the government of God, and this section is actually the grace of God. And this section here, I do want to say, is a very, very important section. And you shouldn't consider the first section without this last section. Now, we have in chapter 40 a message of comfort from God the Creator, the Savior, and the Sustainer. Now, the message is changed, but not the messenger. And, of course, here is where the higher critics came along, and they said, well, that the subject is so entirely different that we must have two Isaiahs. Well, why not have two subjects? Are a message changed rather than having to change the messenger and have two Isaiahs. And actually, of course, that is what it is. I could give a very, I think, simple illustration. It has been my custom to write on the different books of the Bible and different subjects in these books. I have, for instance, a little book on the second psalm. What is this world coming to? Judgment, of course. And then I have a message on the 22nd Psalm, and that's the X-ray of the cross. Now, the subjects are altogether different, and it has prompted one or two folk that have written to me and one or two of my friends that have said to me, how in the world could you write on one subject and then turn around and write on that which is almost contrary to it? It's the opposite. Well, may I say to you, Psalm 2 and Psalm 22 are entirely two different subjects, but written, by the way, by the same individual. And that is not something that's unusual. And that's what we have here in this particular section. Now, we come to this in this section here, and I probably should call attention to it at the very outset, and that is that though the message is one of comfort, not judgment, we are going to see in this section God is revealed as creator and a savior and a sustainer. And he'll not be the great unknown to his people. He'll be a very personal God, very much of a reality. And you will find running through this 
section a polemic against idolatry. And very frankly, it becomes very sarcastic in places. Isaiah, he flourishes a mean pen at times as he makes his attack upon idols, because that was the great sin of Israel. You see, when God called Abraham, he called him out of a home of idolatry to serve the living and true God. And from Abraham, a nation that was to witness to the unity of the Godhead. Hear, O Israel, the Lord Jehovah, your Elohim, Jehovah, your plural God, is one Jehovah. That was their message to the world in that day. Now, the church, of course, in the midst of atheism, not polytheism, is to witness to the Trinity today. This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We are to know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we know the Holy Spirit when he's taking the things of Christ and showing them unto us. Now let's begin this section. And there's a new note now. The thunders and lightnings of Sinai are subdued. They're smothered now by the wonderful message of grace that comes from God. Will you listen to it? Verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. This is no longer now woe unto somebody. We had six woes in the last section. That is the first section of the book. And there were about a dozen burdens. That's all been lifted now because we are going to see a burden bearer here, one who later on will fulfill everything that Isaiah said about him, and he will be the one that will give an invitation, "'Come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, and I'll rest you.'" He lifts the burden. And we have here now this comfort. Comfort ye, comfort ye, and that's a sigh of yearning that comes from the pulsating heart of our God. And he's a God of all comfort. Remember, that's the way that Paul speaks of him in 2 Corinthians first chapter, verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. And the Holy Spirit, by the way, is called the Comforter. The Lord Jesus said, I'm going to pray the Father, and he'll give you another Comforter, that he may abide with you forever. And he is today a Comforter. That's in the world. Now in verse 2, Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, it's been suggested that when there was an indebtedness or mortgage on a house in Israel, that the fact was written on a paper, that is, a legal document, just as we'd have today when a mortgage is made. 
Now, in that day, the mortgage was put on one of the doorposts so that I guess all your neighbors, all your friends would know that you got a mortgage on your place. Now, when that mortgage was paid off, then the second copy of it, the carbon copy of it, was taken and put on the other doorposts. Now, that's a sign that it's been paid. Now, that's what he says here. This was what it meant to receive double. They've been pardoned. It's been paid. The Lord Jesus has paid the debt. Now, that's the difference, actually, between the dealings of God with his people and with us today that actually separates Christianity from all pagan religions and the Old Testament, even under law, altogether different. And it's all wrapped up in that little word, propitiation. Now, the heathen and all their religions, they bring an offering to God to appease him. And that's what propitiation means. A great many people think that's what it means in the Bible. That it means you've got to do something that God is angry. You've got to do something to win him over. And the heathen are always doing that. Their gods are always angry. They're difficult to get along with. And their feelings are hurt. And my, they're not very friendly. But the thing is that the sin of man has alienated man from God. But you see, it's God who did something. And today, God is propitious. You don't have to do anything to win him over. And propitiation is toward God. And reconciliation is toward us. God has done everything that needs to be done. And today, we're asked to be reconciled to God, not to bring something to win him over. God's already won over. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, that's the word of comfort, and that's the word of comfort that's gone out today to a lost world. Now, look at verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, all four of the gospel writers quote this verse as applying to John the Baptist. And since it's in there four times, I'm not even prepared to argue about it this morning. I say this refers to John the Baptist. Now, we are told in verse 4, "...every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it." Now, Luke quotes this also as applying to John the Baptist. Now, we are told in verse 7 and 8, "...the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it, surely the people is grass." Now, we come here to where man is compared to the grass of the field. And the question is, where can there be comfort in this? To be reminded that Today, you and I, just like grass that's out yonder growing, and here in California in the spring after the rains, my, how beautiful the hillside looks. And it's not many days, the sun coming down, that it begins to wither and die. Man is just like that. And this is not comfort, you say. Yes, it is. You see, man is faint and frail and feeble. 
But the Word of God is what's strong and sure and secure. And that's our hiding place. That's our foundation that we rest on. That's our sword and our buckler. That's our high tower. That's our protection. That's our security. That's our salvation. Listen to what Simon Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 23. Being born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. You see, it's only the gospel that gives eternal life to man who very naturally is just a transitory creature on this earth. That's all in the world that he is. Now, the wonderful message is contained here in verse 9. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up to the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. That's what the message was. John the Baptist was introducing him, you see. And the good tidings, of course, is the gospel. What is it? Behold your God. And my friend, until you see that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, you haven't seen anything yet. And until you come to him, not just as a man, but come to him as a God, Emmanuel, God with us. And because of that, his name's Jesus. That's his human name. And if he's just a human, he's not my Savior. But since he's Emmanuel, he is Jesus. He is my Savior. How wonderful this is. Now, Isaiah, as he generally does, draws together the first and second coming of Christ. Verse 10, the second coming. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. This looks forward to the second advent. Actually, the gospel includes both the comings of Christ. And the wonderful thing is that today we are apt to get sidetracked and put all the emphasis on either the first coming or the second coming. Let's put it on both comings. That's the totality of the gospel. Now, when we come to verse 12, we've come to creation, a revelation of God. Now, this speaks of the greatness of God. Listen to verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hall of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Now, who's done that today? And to begin with, when you get out in space, it won't weigh anything. So who's doing the weighing today, and where are you going to weigh it? This verse is a verse that I always feel like singing, How great thou art, but don't worry, I won't be singing it. I can't sing, but how great thou art goes with this. And we have in verse 13, who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? Our being his counselor hath taught him. You know, God knows no equal. 
nor is there anyone to whom he can go to for advice, and there's no one you can compare him with. Someone has asked the rather facetious question, what is it that you have seen that God has never seen? Well, it's very simple. It's his equal. God's never seen his equal. I see mine every day. Now, will you notice verse 18? To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? Well, the fact of the matter is, you and I know very little, even with the Word of God. All we can know is what's revealed. And I don't think God's told us everything. To begin with, we can't even comprehend what he has told us. Now, here you have the fact that he's comparing, or I should say contrasting, God to idols. Who are you going to liken him to? To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? And look around you at the pictures today. I personally don't care for pictures of Jesus, because they're not pictures of Jesus. And now I don't become very popular when I say that. I find out gospel bookstores that sell these pictures in other places and other people that are rather sentimental about it. They think I'm very terrible. But my friend, we don't need the pictures of him at all. As old Scotch philosopher years ago said, men never even think of painting the picture of Jesus till they lose the presence of him in their hearts. Now, will you notice here, this is the first one of these rather ironical attacks that Isaiah make against idolatry. He says, verse 19, "...the workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreaded it over the gold, and casteth silver chains." And in other words, the rich here, they have a very ornate idol. They have a very rich God. But the poor fellow, he has a crude idol. He that is, verse 20, so impoverished that he hath no oblation, he chooseth a tree that will not rot. So he just whittles them out of God. And therefore, this is rather preposterous, because God says, verse 21, "...have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundation of the earth?" These things are preposterous. He that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Now, who told you that the earth was flat? I hate to say it, but you know who first taught that the earth was flat? It was the scientists in the days of Columbus who taught it. Bible never did teach the earth was flat. The so-called scientists didn't pay attention to the Word of God in that day, and they missed something. And the earth is a circle. It's so stated here. The Old Testament never did teach a flat earth. Science taught that in its day. I'm not always sure they're right today. Now, will you notice here, he moves on in this section to speak of idolatry. And I'm not going into a great deal of detail here. I want to drop down now to verse 27. You have here now, Consideration is a call from God. You see, creation is really a revelation from God. Now we have this matter of consideration. It's actually a call to consider in the light of all of this. Verse 27, Why sayest thou, Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, 
My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. God knows about the difficulties and problems of those that are his own. And friend, if you belong to him, he's able to quiet the storms of life for you. And somebody says, well, I'm in a storm, and he hasn't quieted it. Well, then, instead of sitting down and weeping or beginning to criticize God, why not begin to look around and find out what the lesson is he wants you to learn in the storm? God would not let you go through it lest there was a lesson there for you to learn. And then the lesson may be this. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, he feigneth not, neither is weary? God never gets tired. There's no searching of his understanding. But man down here, well, the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young man shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, there are three degrees of power here, and there have been several expositors that have likened this to the three stages of Christian growth that you have in 1 John, the second chapter, verses 12 and 14. There, you have the young Christian, the young man, you have the adult, and then you have the mature, or the senior citizen. Now, the young Christian shall mount up as an eagle, the adult Christian He'll run, and the mature Christian shall walk. And that is quite interesting, by the way. And you have all three that are here. It's like the black preacher down in my Southland years ago preaching, by the way, a very wonderful sermon, I would say. He got up and he said, Brethren, he says, this church, it needs to walk. And that one of the deacons said, Amen. He says, brethren, this church needs to run. And this deacon says, hallelujah. And then he says, brethren, this church needs to fly. And this deacon, he said, amen and hallelujah. And then the minister said, but it's going to cost money to make this church fly. And then this deacon says, let her walk, brother, let her walk. And today, it doesn't make any difference who you are. If you're going to walk with God today through this earth, I think this man is entirely accurate. He'll probably cost you something. But he'll furnish you strength. Whatever your condition is, you need strength to walk, he'll give it to you. If you need strength to fly, he's got that for you also. This is a wonderful chapter, a comfort. The comfort of God as our Creator, as our Savior, and as our Sustainer. How wonderful it is. It is a fine opening for this last section of Isaiah. Now, as we come here to chapter 41 in Isaiah, and if you have your Bible, turn there, and it'll make it more meaningful to you. And now in chapter 41, the subject is the greatness of God and the weakness of man contrasted. Now, actually, this chapter continuously thought that was opened up in chapter 40, that set before us the greatness of God. And the emphasis here is not upon God as creator so much as upon his dealings with man. 
The greatness of God is revealed, I would say, here, both in creation and human history. Now, I also want to add that there are some things in this chapter that are rather enigmatic. And I mean this, there seems to be in the background a profile of prophecy. But the thought here and the great impact of this chapter is that God will protect and lead his own through the world, a world that's filled with pitfalls and danger. Therefore, there's comfort here for the child of God. Now we have this chapter divided like this. God overrules individuals. That's in the first six verses. God overtures Israel to trust him. That's the heart of the chapter, verses 7 through 20. And then 21 through 29, God overturns idols. Now let's look at it in the light of this division that we've made. In verse 1, I read now, "...keep silence before me, O islands." And let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Then let them speak. Let us come together to judgment. Now, the whole world of individuals today is moving toward judgment, as we've said. In other words, there's a showdown that is coming between light and darkness, between God and mammon, between faith and unbelief. And God now is calling upon individuals to turn to him and accept the salvation he has to offer. That is, God today is propitious. He's not demanding anything of you. He is asking you to accept his grace and the salvation he has to offer. Now, in verse 2, "...who raised up the righteous man from the east." Now, there are those that feel like this is a veiled suggestion of Cyrus. Now, Cyrus will be mentioned by name shortly in this book, but this is not the place. I think that what you have here is a quality, and it's righteousness. And it doesn't refer to a person. I think it has reference to the rule of righteousness, which Christ will establish at his return to the earth. Now, we find here that this is developed in this section, and I drop down and pick up verse 6. They helped everyone his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. Now, since God is coming to right the wrongs and to relieve injustices, individuals who are right with God can be of good courage. In other words, there is hope for the little man who will trust God today. He doesn't have a future to worry about. Now, at verse 7, we see that God overtures Israel to trust him. And here we have again that reference to idolatry. So the carpenter, verse 7, I'm reading, So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he smootheth with the hammer him that smote the anvil, saying, It's ready for the soldering. And he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. Now, in an emergency, there were those that hammered them out a god, that is, a temporary idol. But now God says, verse 8, "...but thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend." In other words, God now turns to Israel to comfort them in their distress. He says, instead of 
hammering you out an idol, why not turn to the Lord? And after all, he knows you're a sinner, and he still calls them Jacob. Jacob meant the crooked one. It's God who made him a prince with God, and God wants to do that now for the sons of Jacob. And Abraham, you remember, was called a friend of God. And God wants to bring these people into a right relationship with him. Now he says here in verse 10, Fear thou not, for I'm with thee. Be not dismayed, for I'm thy God. I'll strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now, this verse certainly has been a pillar of strength and a source of comfort for God's children in every age, and it should be that. Now, he says, here as he moves on, that if they attempt to oppose God, that would be the very height of folly, because time's going to reveal that, because we're moving toward a day when all these adjustments are going to have to be made. Now, here in verse 13, this is a very remarkable verse. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I'll help thee. Now, this is God's gracious overture to trust him. What comfort that is. God wants to take us into his confidence, enable us to walk with him, to have fellowship with him, to know him. My, what mankind is missing today. And some people can even get so involved in church work that they miss all of this. This is a very wonderful section. God speaks right directly to him. Verse 14, he says, Fear not, thou worm, Jacob. You may think you're something, but you're a nobody. We're a nobody. It's only God that can make us a somebody. Little man frets down you and struts across the stage of life, as Shakespeare put it. And he huffs and puffs like the old wolf around the little pig's house. Huffing and puffing. That's man today. And where is he going? What is he getting out of it? And some of them see the futility of it all and take their own life. Well, where else are they going to turn, friend? The only place you can turn today is God. And what men are missing today? The fellowship, the salvation, his goodness, his grace, all of these are yours if you but turn to him. Now, he talks to them about the material blessings of the millennium, and they're going to be there. He'd like to talk to you and me about the spiritual blessings we have now and those we're going to have in eternity. Now we come to the third division here, and that God overturns idols. Now, that begins in verse 21. God says here, "...produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, saith the king of Jacob." Now, this is a challenge to idolaters. Now, who is an idolater? Anything that you put between your soul and God, that's your idol. I don't care what it is. Anything you're giving your time to, your energy to, and it could actually be to a religion. But anything that you give yourself to, and let it take the place of the living God and a personal relationship with him. Now, to begin with, what can idols do? 
can they explain the origin of the universe to man? Are you satisfied today with the explanations that evolution is given? Of course, the only white evolutionists that you listen to, because they've got several explanations. But God says, let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them to declare unto us things for to come. Now, man today doesn't know the beginning, the origin of everything. He doesn't know. I don't care what you follow today. It's going to be a rather embarrassing thing in the next 50 years when evolution will be abandoned. That's just one of the many theories that's left along the wreckage of the highway of time. There have been many explanations of the origin of the universe that were called scientific at that time. They're exploded today. They're no good. Evolution will be exploded in its time, and then man will turn to something else, you see. Man doesn't know his origin, and he doesn't know the future. Man is a very ignorant creature. Have you ever stopped to think really how little you know? And I'd like now to say that to the PhDs that listen to this program. I heard of a preacher. I think he's over here in Phoenix, Arizona, or somewhere in Arizona, he was working on his Ph.D. degree. And I understand that his Ph.D. degree was granted him, but he was working on the great subject of studying the eye of the mosquito. Now, my friend, there is an exciting subject. And one day, he just, as he was working on this and had been really interested in it, All of a sudden, it occurred to him that he didn't want to spend the rest of his life looking at a mosquito in the eye. And I wouldn't think that would be, you know, too exciting. I wouldn't mind taking one or two looks. But after that, I think it became monotonous. And this man came to that conclusion. And he began to move out from that. And he found the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. He said, I want to give my life now to something worthwhile. And today he's a minister of the gospel. Quite interesting, you know, how you can spend your life down here, and you may have your Ph.D. degree, and still you don't know anything. Don't know anything about the origin of this universe, or you don't know where it's going. Now, no idol can tell you that, and no Ph.D. degree can give you that answer. No college today can give that to you. It's well to turn to the one who does have the answer. And it doesn't mean he'll give you the answer, but it's nice to know him who knows the answer. Let me refer you again to a motto that's meant a great deal to me. In the science building of the college that I attended, there was on the bulletin board a statement. I'll never forget it. I never learned much science, but it was worth taking all the courses I took there just to get this motto, because that's probably all I know today. And it's this, next to knowing is knowing where to find out. Now, there's so many things I don't know, but I want to say this to you, I know the one who does know. And 
I can find out from him. Now, he's not letting me in on a lot of things. Now, will you notice verse 24 here? Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught, an abomination is he that chooseth you. Now, man cannot explain his past, does not know his future apart from God. And therefore, it makes all a man's efforts today apart from God a very empty sort of thing. I'll be very candid with you today. If I had no hope, as I said to a man that came up to me in my first pastor, he had an old rusty pistol. He said to me, he says, if you can't give me a good reason for living, why, I'm going to solve all my problems by taking my life. Well, now, what do you do with a fellow like that? He's got an old rusty, I guess it was a forty-five, big old gun. And I said to him, I said, now, look here just a moment. I said, if you can show me that you will solve your problems by taking your life, I said, I'll be glad to go get you a better gun than the one you got and let you do a good job. If you can show me, you'll solve your problem. I said, very candidly, if you are not going to turn to God and to Christ, not going to bring him in your life, I said, you just, well, use the gun. I see no reason why you shouldn't. Well, that really took the fellow back because he thought that I was going to begin to argue with him about the reasons for living. I'm not even about to argue with him on that point. And may I say to you, that fellow put his gun down, and at that time he didn't turn to Christ, but he did later on. He has the answer. He's the only one that does. Now, will you notice here, and I come to the last verse, verse 29. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. Now, confusion is the end result of idolatry or any philosophy which is anti-God or atheistic. It doesn't have the answer to the problems of life. These man-made systems cannot satisfy the human heart. The answer is found in the one who bringeth good tidings of great joy. Now, chapter 42 again we have here this subject, Jesus, the servant of Jehovah, then the polemic against idolatry, and Israel, the servant of Jehovah. Isaiah's just gradually in each chapter, he's working up to his condemnation of idolatry. Now, we find here that the nation Israel is called a servant of Jehovah, and the servant of Jehovah is Israel, and also, the Lord Jesus Christ is the servant of Jehovah and is so called that in both Mark and in Matthew. And he made it very clear. He says, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, give his life a ransom for many. That is something that Mark emphasizes, is the servanthood of the Lord Jesus. That's in Mark 10, 45, the verse that I quoted. Now you have first the servant of Jehovah. That's the Lord Jesus in the first seven verses. And then have here the scourge or the sacrilege of idolatry, that is, graven images. 
and that's 8 through 17, and then the servant of Jehovah, that's Jacob, the nation, by the way. Now, he says here, "...behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles." Now, this is a call to consider the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is applied to him. And it says here, and we've emphasized this before, "...a bruised reed shall he not break, the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth." That's verse 3. And that's quoted in Matthew 12, 20. You see, the Lord Jesus didn't have to move in with a club. He cleansed the temple, but he didn't wade in to the Pharisees, religious rulers, or to the sinner. You know, you just let sin take care of itself. Smoking flax, a man keeps on in sin, it'll break out in flame finally. The wages of sin is death. Always works that way. You couldn't change that. Now, the Lord Jesus is God's servant. This is a marvelous section. Then in verse 8 here, we have idolatry. Will you notice this? He says, I'm the Lord. That's my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. God will not share his glory with another. That's something that's quite interesting today. God has never promised to bless an individual, an organization, or church. God has promised to bless his word, only that which will bring glory to his name. And he won't share his glory with another. Now, he begins to move into this area here. He talks here about the scourge of idolatry. And he says, verse 10, "...sing unto the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. All creatures on this earth will someday sing praises to God." Now, the Lord says, verse 15, "...I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all the herbs. I'll make the rivers islands. I'll dry up the pools." The physical earth is to be affected by his judgment. "...and I'll bring the blind by a way that they knew not." This is the way he leads his own. You and I are blind to the future. He's not. And he'll lead all who put their trust in him. And... They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images that say to the molten images, you're our gods. The idolaters, you see, are warned here. God says judgment is coming. Then we have here the statement concerning Israel, verse 19, "...who is blind but my servant?" This is his condemnation of his own people. And he speaks of them in verse 22. This is a people robbed and spoiled. Why? Why, because of the fact they've turned away from God and they have turned to idols. My, what a marvelous section this is.